KZSU, Stanford, 9.1 FM. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program. This is a show all about housing, land use, the public good, and much more. Today in the program, we have on Laksh Basin. He is a member of the SF Berniecrats. He is a chair of the SF Berniecrats Housing Committee. And he is a co-author of the San Francisco Community Housing Act which is a municipal program intended to vastly increase the amount of public housing in SF's hands. So he's on today. We're going to talk about all the ins and outs. Uh, just to spoil it ahead of time, it is, uh, it is uh, not moving forward this year due to COVID and the difficulty gathering signatures, but still a lot to talk about policy. We also talk about Article 34 and much, much more. So let's just get into things. So welcome, Laksh. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, so we are on here today to talk all about public housing in San Francisco, mm -hmm. about how they're trying to do things you know, locally, not depend upon the vagaries of uh, the federal government. And this is being done through a bill which is currently uh, you know, on ice this year. We'll get into that. Uh, but it is the San Francisco Community Housing Act. So, uh, yeah, first, why don't you introduce yourself and tell a little bit of how you came into this and, you know, uh, how you became a, a co-author of this of this bill. Yeah, no, I, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, so the San Francisco Community Housing Act um, started really about three and a half years ago, uh, soon after the 2016 election. Uh, a lot of folks within, you know, uh, the main organization, I'm part of the San Francisco Bernie Kratz, were trying to think about, you know, since the Bernie campaign ended since, uh, you know, a lot of the pushes for social justice, racial justice, economic justice, like Medicare for all, uh, affordable housing that we felt were, uh, you know, really important had been dropped. You know, we tried to see what we could do locally, both in California, uh, working on the single payer bill, SB 562, and in San Francisco, working on issues of healthcare and housing. And housing, you know, really, uh, was an important one, obviously, with the massive affordable housing crisis. Many of our members, you know, struggling to to stay in San Francisco. Um, it's it's a problem, you know, for for a political organization when you have massive churn because of because of folks getting displaced, and it's a problem more broadly in in San Francisco. And so we we tried to think about ways in which we can try to make housing as affordable as we can, you know, with real community, like, and when I say community, I mean like low-income community input from input from folks who have been historically marginalized, left out of neighborhood decision-making processes. Um, and that was sort of the, the starting point, really. And we, we started to look towards, you know, obviously the history of public housing in the United States, but also the history of social housing uh, as it's more known more broadly abroad. You know, the, the most famous example is, is places like Vienna, but you know there, there's a lot of places that have a, a huge amount of public housing and are able to keep rents low uh, with that. And you know, it's it, as a formula, it's it's fairly simple. You know, there, there's a lot of tax revenue that has to go into subsidizing the costs of development, of acquiring land, or of acquiring buildings in some cases, existing buildings. Um, and then after that, you know, because the subsidy helps so much with paying those costs, the rents are able to be fairly low to cover mostly the operating and, and capital expenses. But, you know, it was really important to us when we were writing this measure that we find a way so that the measure can be sustaining financially. It doesn't have to depend on the federal government in order to, to keep itself going. Um, and I think that was an important part because, I, you know, I've been reading a lot about the history of the Housing Authority. Actually, last year, a book came out, Housing the City by the Bay, about the history of San Francisco's Housing Authority. And it was really interesting to me reading about how from day one, it was underfunded. They had to scrap together enough money to afford rent for an office for the Housing Authority, which I think is just absurd. Um, and, and, and the federal government constantly, you know, didn't give them anywhere near the funds they needed to construct and develop, but also just to maintain. And, and this has been a long trend in the history of public housing where military has been getting you know, emphasized more and more in the budget and, and services like housing have been getting 
pretty big cuts. Yeah, it's it's worth you know noting that San Francisco's history, in a lot of ways, is very similar to other places. You know, it kind of was incubated. I think the authority was started in the late '30s, the same time as the major funds for the federal programs. They built a lot. Actually, I mean, they they built a ton during the war because when the, when the yeah. military faucets are on, everything uh, is is fair game. Uh, and just over the years, the federal government has become more and more hostile to public housing. And, you know, from hearing how it talked about, you know, uh, it's it, the municipal housing authority is a shell of what it used to be insofar as it kind of just uh, it has actually divested through the federal RAD program of, you know, a lot of cases completely just privatizing its housing uh, in San Francisco. Uh, it sounds you know a lot more like they try to work with nonprofits to keep it, you know, to make sure there isn't displacement, but, you know, they still aren't controlling it. There's still a lot of, uh, and, and if, you, you know, there's, but this would be a real measure to say, let's avoid the problems of underfunding the authority. We can do this all in-house and we can actually make sure the operating costs are self-sustaining. You know, that's that's a really exciting thing because that's the, not not figuring out operating costs is, I think, the historic problem with uh, yeah, public housing in the U.S., certainly. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And also, you know, the fact that this is municipal housing really means that the buck, you know, stops here, that the, the, the blame for, you know, a lot of these things cannot be passed on to the federal government to a large extent, that, you know, your local board of supervisors and the mayor would ultimately have the say. Um, I, I think that, you know, there are a couple of things that I can say about the Housing Authority and its, its structure. The Housing Authority is a is a really interesting agency. It is a uh, federally funded, federally authorized, state chartered entity that is totally separate from city, the city and county of San Francisco. And so, you know, there, there are, I, I think over the course of the history, there have been more cons to that than pros because, you know, at least, you know, the, the incorporation into the city government ensures that it's a part of the budget process every year. And, you know, it, 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 for the housing authority, they often have to make requests, you know, for city funding. And, you know, that's a political lift if they aren't, you know, by default a part of that process. And so um, the other side is also that, you know, the housing authority in San Francisco, it was really unique because it was only in a city and county this is in state law, that the mayor can have complete control over a housing authority. In other places, the Board of Supervisors is allowed to have, you know, some control over the commissioners of the housing authority. And historically, you know, since the beginning, that's led to a competition of business interests who actually didn't care about the housing authority and actually wanted to see private housing play the biggest role. Uh, and in many ways helped undermine the vision that a lot of idealists had uh, in 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 trying to build like a vision of social housing more similar to Europe, uh, what Europe was going through at the time. Yeah. So as as far as that goes, I mean, it's it's you know determining who it's accountable to. You know, this would be uh, something which is run within the city government, which would have a new mm -hmm. commission and uh, and would be able to I, I think be more integrated into this game i mean it's just a question when you I've, I've i'm just like power broker going through my head of when you have weird authorities they can be accountable to effectively nobody and it's 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 mm -hmm. uh it's a bit concerning yeah and you know just to clarify in in this measure that as we'd written it you know we didn't create a new department that would actually require a charter amendment and that might be something to think about going forward. Uh, in this case, it's just been integrated into the existing mayor's office of housing and pros and cons to that. Um, you know, uh, it's, it, it, but you know, we were writing this essentially as a ballot measure uh, ordinance to go to the ballot. And, and um, you know, I, I think if we were to create an ideal system, it would have to become a separate department. But you know, the history of, of departments is that they tend to evolve out of other departments and and so on as as the the mandate gets too heavy for one to hold everything together. Mayor's Office of Housing is kind of famous for managing a lot of different things uh, as it comes to as it pertains to housing. Okay, so was I was I right about there being a commission? I thought I read something in the Act about a commission being appointed. There's an oversight committee. Uh, it's a typical you know advisory committee gotcha. that's that's required usually for special taxes. Um, and yeah, that that was the main uh, the main part uh, in in the measure. The measure itself, as an ordinance, it's about raising the tax revenue, uh, mostly by taxing uh, large corporations' uh, revenues in order to fund and subsidize the costs of uh, of public housing. Yeah. So okay. So to break it down, it sounds like 
operating expenditures, it sounds like it will be helped by the fact there'll be a fund. And the fund is being paid through through businesses with over $25 million in, in receipts. And uh, mm-hmm. But this really, I mean, even if, you know, this, this you know, it's, it's supposed to be, this is supposed to seed it. This is supposed to build stuff, acquire stuff. Uh, and unlike a lot of things in which, you know, you, you beg, you beg, you get money, you, you build stuff, and then suddenly you are desperate, the uh, I guess the uh, cross you know financing through having affordable houses you know f- subsidized affordable units and then uh, things that would be you know effectively open to you know you know any any incomes but you would pay a certain level to kind of make sure it all balances it would make sure the fund would go into building new stuff which is pretty novel compared to just the historic way you know the U S has funded its public housing. Yeah, exactly. So the the fund is focused on 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 uh, acquisition and construction. Um, acquisition right now in San Francisco because of the economics is a little bit cheaper. Um, and yeah, the the you alluded to an important point, which is that this is housing that's really designed to be accessible to anyone who lives or works in San Francisco. There is an income distribution. It it tries to focus it on you know folks who are low income where we believe the need is the strongest. Uh, but that cross subsidizing of different income levels, higher income levels, paying rent so that lower income folks, poorer folks don't have to pay as much in rent is really important for keeping the operating costs going and keeping the housing affordable to individual circumstances. Uh, even in cases of you know affordable housing where it's it's supposed to be you know on the sticker 30% of your income, sometimes folks are paying more than that because of the way the laws are written. Um, and so we wanted to make sure, and we had a lot of folks with, uh, we had a, convers- a lot of conversations with uh, with uh, poor folks, poor magazine uh, people who are directly impacted in order to get a sense of what will be affordable to folks in San Francisco, to the poorest folks in San Francisco who desperately need housing. And then we tried to balance basically the financing off of that. So when this was being crafted, uh, were, were there explicit models of, of this that you were looking at? What, 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 was the, what was the incubation of this of this whole thing like for you guys? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the main one is definitely Vienna that we look to. Um, Vienna right now is is actually moving at a very fast clip. 4,000 or so units of social housing are added to their stock every year. So it is pretty impressive. Um, and, you know, the, the financing specifics, we didn't model it to, like, exactly based on Vienna. Obviously, a lot of things are different when it comes to land prices and so on in San Francisco, cost of labor. Um but just the general idea that, you know, and, and this has also been the case in the past in, in, in the United States to an extent, that folks in Vienna are, are typically paying no more than 20 to 25 percent of income on rent. And, you know, the number used to be, and I found a very interesting documentary about this, the Pruitt-Igo myth, which talks about one of the iconic public housing projects in the United States that was demolished. Folks were talking there that, you know, before this 30 percent of income standard, it used to be 25 percent was like the typical, you know, standard for affordable housing. And um, so we're trying to move back in that direction. Uh, you know, that was definitely something that we heard a lot of from our community outreach as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's really a combination of taking these ideas that have worked in places outside of San Francisco and then trying to figure out how do they work here with, with what folks need and what the uh, economy is like, what you know, the specifics of development are like in San Francisco. Yeah, there's there's a challenge historically with you know there, there's two different factors of there's a lot of people need help. Do you help explicitly the people who need the most help? Uh, and that seems like the obvious answer. But historically, it's you know it's very like when you have a targeted, explicitly fully means tested program, it really hurts the political feasibility in the long term. And when you, and, and usually it's even when you start building these, like the Prodigo or other other uh, famous housing projects, built in marginal land in a way that was just almost, you know, not really designed to succeed and then, you know, intentionally sabotaged. Uh, and, you know, I think in Vienna, it's something where you could be almost in any strata of the Viennese society, not, not to endorse that stratified society is good, but it's, it kind of, it's, it's perverse. It actually brings people together and it kind of makes sure they can, you know, feel like, oh yeah, public housing is for everybody. It's like libraries. It's stuff we all, you know, can benefit. And like right now, I mean, SF is, you know, I, I think in especially bad state, it's, uh, yeah, I'm not sure how this if this is the divested program through RAD, uh, but you know, 0.3 percent 
of the entire housing stock is 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 public housing in, in San Francisco? Yeah. Not not much. Yeah, no, absolutely. We highlight that in our, in our resources. And yeah, that's because of the rental assistance demonstration program, which, uh, as you noted, started to because of all these maintenance uh, and operational backlogs that were there for public housing, uh, started to move towards uh, privatization in San Francisco. Uh, that meant that the housing authority still retains ownership, but the operations and, 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 and so on are, are nowadays managed by uh, private sponsors, typically nonprofits. Um, and yeah, I, I wanted to go back to the point you made about, about Vienna. That's that's a good point. Actually, I think there they have an income cap. It's around it's somewhere around sixty thousand US dollars, which is around twice their median income or one and a half times their average somewhere in that area. So it's a pretty high uh, income cap, but absolutely it's viewed more as a human right rather than as something that's restricted to one section of the population. And I, I think what you're identifying is that often these kinds of broad-based social programs are much more able to get political support and be sustainable in the long run just out of self-interest just out of having folks who are voting, being in that housing, having them being able to hold their elected officials accountable, having more of a say. And in, in many ways, it, 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 it's, it's disappointing that that wasn't the case as much for public housing tenants. Public housing tenants right now are making somewhere around, you know, typically around $10,000, $20,000 a year. They're some of the poorest folks in society. They're very clearly have been marginalized because of racism and classism and the input that they have is is very structurally left out of the democracy today. Yeah, and that's that's what a very in, interesting part of this. A lot of the actual uh, legislation is talking about how tenants actually get a voice when they're inside of this, how they can be represented, uh, you know. Uh, and then on top of it, there's even if if I'm like understanding this right, provisions for rent strikes within the uh, within these tenant uh, groups themselves, which is. I think very different than the kind of typical thing, which is, I mean, like the historic public housing, which is you put them there, you house them there, you, you hope they shut up, you know, they hope they just stay quiet. And it's led to a lot of mm -hmm. neglect when it's uh, people have been administering these badly. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that the tenant associations in public housing uh, as it exists in San Francisco actually started up in, I believe, around the late 60s, 70s or so, in response to being ignored, right? So the tenants felt like they had to get more organized. Now, uh, there were some unsympathetic folks at the Housing Authority, the main one being John Beard back in the 60s, who really didn't like that um, and, 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 and tried to, you know, lower that level of activism and so on. But it was absolutely crucial to making sure their voices were heard because otherwise, you know, many very serious maintenance issues were being ignored by the housing authority at the time. And so we wanted to make sure that from the beginning, these tenant associations are, are legally recognized, that they have this legal right to do a rent strike, that they can withhold rent in, in response to, you know, untenantable conditions, uninhabitable conditions. And actually, you know, as a as an individual, you can actually do that in California. There's some limits on how often you can do it, but this is really about a collective withholding in order to make a greater statement and really force the the, the system to, to listen to the needs of the poorest tenants in, in housing. Yeah, we are we're definitely in a very dire situation right now. The eviction moratoria, uh, you know, it's temporary, it's created a backlog, it's going to get ugly and a lot of people have been organizing but it is true that uh, i think you know in california i mean in, in almost all places but you know it's on the tenants to form the groups to kind of create the infrastructure to push back uh, against uh, mistreatment uh, and it's very interesting that this it kind of comes out of the box that you are guaranteed to have these uh, you know tenant you know, groups and, and organizing because it's it's not trivial to start them up. So that's a very it's a you know I think very forward thinking thought to include it right right out of the gate. Yeah, absolutely, and th thank you for that. And, and and definitely, it's it's um it's important that we actually also put money into tenant support services in order to make sure that these community councils have the support from city staff in order in order to function. And that's something that we call out in the measure as well. Yeah, so you were talking about the the history of, of public housing in San Francisco over the years. Do you happen to have, like what was at its very highest peak? Well, you know the numbers. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I have rough ideas. Um, I, I know during the temporary housing wartime periods it was somewhere around, but those were the temporary units. Yeah, like barrack style. But yeah, in, in terms of dwelling units, the numbers were somewhere around eight or so thousand at at, at the peak. Um, 
And, you know, there were many privatizations that happened. There was Hope 6 that happened in the 1990s, Hope SF that happened in the 2000s, and then RAD, which we just discussed, which started under the Obama era. So so that number gradually went down, and it's less than 1,000, and it's going to be basically zero at this stage because the Housing Authority has gotten out of the business of public housing, essentially. They're mostly doing uh, Section 8 at this stage, Section 8 rental subsidies. Yeah, so when, when the Housing Authority has its wait lists, are those connected to all the different nonprofits that they invested through, or is this kind of for the very small amount? Because right now, it's closed. I was reading about it was closed. It opened it about 10 years ago. Quickly, like 30,000 people jumped on the waiting list. And I, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's kind of a sign of health. You know, how long is the waiting list? And it just shows you how dire things have been in San Francisco. Yeah, no, I, I believe I, I wouldn't quote myself on this, but I, I, I believe that right now it's been it's mostly being managed by the nonprofits that they're contracting out to. And I'll say this. I mean, it's from it sounds like, you know, the experience from everyone I've ever heard of, it's dire because it means you have to go around and just do this incredible amount of process to say, oh, will you, are you accepting? Are you accepting? Uh, it's as opposed to any kind of one streamlined source. And I mean, that would be one big advantage of having a real municipal level public housing. It's the one-stop shop for where you go for public housing needs as opposed to uh, the immense amount of work we put on, on people now who, who need help. Yeah, and, and some amount of it is made a little bit easier with the Mayor's Office of Housing Affordable Housing Lottery Program. Uh, that's sort of the current main one-stop shop for a lot of um, affordable housing. Um, but yes, I, I agree with you that it needs to be a lot easier for folks to not only access the housing, but also make sure that the wait lists are nowhere near as long as they are. And the wait lists are as long as they are just because you know the supply of deeply affordable housing is so low. Right. And that's that's at the end of the day, that's what this measure is about, is increasing that supply, increasing really the amount of land that's under uh, public control for public benefit so that folks can have more deeply affordable housing. Yeah, I might be speaking too much from my personal experiences following the affordable housing measures in like Santa Clara County and the fragmentation and just overall, uh, I mean, having a city county up in SF, it certainly makes it a lot more unified. Yeah. 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 Uh, but okay, so I, I think that's the kind of key question. We talk about kind of what is the need for housing in SF. You can look at the total number of you know homeless count. You look at people who are the increasing amount of mega commuters who work here but can't afford to live here. Uh, you can look at you know the amount of you know people who jump on the queues for the uh, for the affordable housing in in the past. Uh, and I mean, this is a I, I think it's it's the biggest challenge, which is just how do you acquire and or build this at scale. Uh, and I mean, it's it's very hard to say any amount will be enough <laughs> because, you know, some places have actually went, it's like, a, it's a question of like, what is the overall percentage you want to hit? And I, I th so this is, it's mm -hmm. an authorization for uh, 30,000 total uh, with a, a floor of effectively 500 a year is the least you can do. Uh, but, you know, I and that's, that's a question. Like if this were to... I mean, it's going to get the funds. I mean, it, and effectively, the way it's being described, it is putting the funds really into these acquisition programs continuously if it was, it was running. So there's really almost nothing else. There, there should be a lot of capacity to, to, to acquire. I mean, if you, if you were to, like, uh, pencil everything out, like, mm -hmm. as far as 500 being the floor, if you're looking at tax receipts over the last, you know, 10 years, five years, whatever... What would that what would that expect to look like in, in real terms? Yeah, and you know a lot of this is going to be very complicated by COVID, obviously dropping uh, tax revenues. But uh, we were estimating somewhere around with the ballot measure that we had written, somewhere around four hundred million a year uh, annually to come in. Uh, of that, we were budgeting for about three hundred and thirty, so about about three quarters to be going towards uh, just construction or acquisition. Um, if you divide that by 500 units, that gets you somewhere in the neighborhood of $660,000 per unit. Um, now, if you're looking at the cost of construction in San Francisco, uh, it's actually heading up quite a bit. I don't know how much COVID has affected this, but it, it was around 800000 or so dollars per unit. So it's a, the, the amount that's being generated by this tax is a little on the low end for, for just purely subsidizing construction. It's it's sort of in the right ballpark for acquisition and rehabilitation of existing buildings. And what that would do is essentially say these existing buildings that are on the private, you know, 
speculative market. Some of them might not be speculative themselves, but they might be close to being sold to somebody. Uh, instead of being sold uh, to a private entity, they could be bought by the city. And then that would sort of increase the amount of land in the city, at least, that's under uh, decommodified uh, control. Yeah, and also, I, I don't know across the board, but that seems like the one silver lining of the RAD divestment is the city did retain the land outright. They are controlling it. Some places just, as I understand, completely yeah. privatized. That sounds like a, like a real win yeah. in, in my book that they, that they continue to hold this. Uh, but as far as I mean, this is this is kind of out of scope. But it's it's it is the in our COVID world, it seems like the other angle to address things as uh, we saw in the 2008 crisis a massive amount of foreclosures and effectively consolidation by more powerful interests, private equity, and so on, uh, obtaining uh, properties. In you know, if you're talking about acquisition, wouldn't it be great if during an economic recession, a crisis, as it were. Uh, you know, the city were able to, instead of seeing all these, you know, private equities scoop them up, be able to scoop these up at effectively bargain prices. Now is the time. I mean, it's right now it's, it's, I mean, as we're going to talk about, this is on ice, but is there any real talk about how the uh, SF government is thinking about being able to acquire foreclosed properties uh, as, as in, in this context? Yeah, there are two important measures that are sort of developing for the uh, November 2020 ballot about this. One of them is a uh, transfer tax that would go to a social housing fund. It's a transfer tax that basically taxes property transactions on properties over $10 million um, and would basically double the current rates above $10 million. Um, it's expected to generate somewhere between 100 to 150 million in a good economy per year. Um, and about half of that will go towards the intent is and this isn't binding in the legislation The intent is for half of that to go towards rent relief and half of that to go towards social housing uh, Including municipal housing, but the important part I want to mention about this tax is not not just not just you know what I said about the fund but also um, if the private entity that's doing the real estate transaction if they instead sell to the city they're exempted from that tax mm. so that's supposed to be a little bit of a, of a carrot, uh, but it, it remains to be seen whether this will pass on the November 2020 ballot. Yeah, I mean, is it is it really just a cynical uh, side of the political calculus that it's 10 million? Because when I look at it, it's like, do I really want the guy selling for 9 million, for 8 million, or even, you know, 1.2 million? Like, like I mean, yeah. it's like to me, uh, almost like you look at the capital gains on real estate, I, that's... I, I would say you might as well look to max it out in kind of an ideal world across the yes. entire spectrum. Uh, at least, you know, I mean, I remember people, San Jose has been fighting over capital gains and they like moved it up to like 3 million because, you know, 2 million is, that's that's a very normal <laughs> price around yeah. here. Uh, I mean, I would, is am I dreaming too much to believe that people really could have tried to move that down a bit? Or is this, you know, is this is this kind of homeowners getting too much on the ball? You know, I, I don't I don't know the details about how, about how that was reached, but you know I, I think you're right that a lot of folks who are making who are selling properties at like five million four three two you know one even like they can afford to pay a little bit more in tax. Like we're talking about relatively speaking, some of the more privileged folks in San Francisco who have the ability to be homeowners rather than you know the more than around two thirds of households who are tenants in the city. Um, so, you know, personally, I, I agree that this tax could be more. I, I just don't know the specifics about how these rates were reached. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'll, t I'll take something instead of nothing. I just really, I mean, I think that's the like overall question of, you know, San Francisco and just well, the entire Bay Area, uh, by and large, an immense amount of real estate inflation over the last, you know, decade plus, And how much of it are we clawing back to put in affordable housing? And the answer is not really a whole lot. And, you know, you can talk about, oh, we need to capture at the very highest level. But every time, you know, uh, one parcel sells for $3 million, that was 100000 a couple decades ago, that's all value that's kind of seeping away from the city's hands. And, uh, and yeah. yeah, it's, I mean, you look at, I mean, one, one model of public housing I always, you know, enjoy seeing the history of because it's just so dramatic is Singapore and they put their their first program was just acquire land, acquire land, and they got you know almost ninety percent of all land about the city. And once you acquire it, 
they were able to do public housing at scale almost no problem but it's very hard because right now i mean you could talk about you know other parts of the area there's still a little bit of marginal land but you know sf it's it's you know under 50 square miles it's pretty boxed in and they don't have a whole lot of room to just you know unless you're taking it from somebody so it's a zero-sum game in some sense yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to the point of housing price inflation, a lot of the things that would typically control things like that, property taxes are obviously capped with Proposition 13. Um, the existing transfer tax, I would say, is, a, is is insufficient. A lot of these tools that would help control property values in, within this capitalist system are, are very lacking in California and, and including in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and prop, we're seeing another, uh, you know, uh, initiative this fall is the Prop 13 split role which, you know, will uh, deal with some land, not all, but uh, it's, it, it's something. But, okay, so let's, let's talk about the, the bad news, which is, you know, I, w- w- this is, 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 is the finger pointed directly really at COVID as far as, you know, just the signature issues, but it's, everything is, is, is not on target for the 2020 ballot, in other words, for, for the Community Housing Act. Yeah, no, that's a very good question. So, you know, we, we had spent a lot of time working on this initiative right out of the gate on March 5th. We filed, we had the endorsement of a lot of great groups, uh, Sunrise Bay Area, SEIU 1021 was involved, um, you know, the San Francisco uh, uh, Democratic Socialists of America, Poor Magazine, a lot of folks were gearing up. We were getting ready to campaign, build that coalition, build that group to get it onto the ballot. Uh, unfortunately, soon after, March 16th is when really shelter-in-place started to be imposed in San yeah, Francisco. Awful timing. I know, right? And, and, and basically, you know, it meant that we couldn't uh, gather signatures. And, and basically, signature gathering is, is just not happening for a lot of ballot initiatives at this stage. And, and we had intended to get on the ballot through signatures. Um, there's a whole background to that. But basically, uh, we believe that if we put this on the ballot through signatures, it would only need 50% of the vote to pass. Um, some of that is being tested in the courts right now as it relates to Prop C for homelessness in, in 2018 and so on. Um, but, you know, yeah, so we, we basically ran into this obstacle of, of, of COVID. And uh, since then, you know, we've been thinking about ways that we can at least try to lay the groundwork for more discussions about municipal housing going forward. And one of those is actually something that was just announced today, which is um, an Article 34 authorization for municipal housing. Uh, I know you covered Article 34 on your on your previous show as well. But you know, just to give a quick recap, it, this is a very racist and classist constitutional amendment from 1950 that says you need local voter approval for any low rent housing, including any kind of public housing. And it was clearly designed as a part of segregation uh, at that time, as a part of redlining at that time, so that a lot of areas in, you know, not just San Francisco, places outside of San Francisco, cities would incorporate, you know, they would be able to have this control over keeping people out, keeping poor people out using things like Article 34. And so um, we were hoping that there would be an effort to repeal this at the state level. Um, there is a bill for it, SCA 1. Um, but it, at the moment, you know, we're trying to see if in San Francisco we can go forward with a local authorization for municipal housing at the ballot. So we're hoping, it was just introduced today at the Board of Supervisors, we're, uh, we're hoping that this will be on the November 2020 ballot uh, and we're going to have to assemble a campaign to pass it. Yeah. Am I, am I wrong to say that? I mean, this is this has been kind of the 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 standard practice in SF. And I guess I mean, it sounds like one more case where it you have a little bit of an easier situation. Santa Clara County, it's being done at every city level. Every city can veto it, which is not surprisingly why Apollo Alto has historically and continues to say they will not fund the subsidized housing there because they will quash it. As opposed to SF, it sounds like if you play your cards right, you can make sure you can not only put everything up to ballot, but have a massive pre-authorization. And, you're, and SF is currently working off of like the same thing happened uh, uh, several years ago. Do you know, you know what the details are on? Yeah, yeah. So there have been Article 34 authorizations in San Francisco history. Um, the most recent ones have typically been for private sponsors, and they've been very focused on that. And okay, yeah, there was one in 2012 uh, in the Housing Trust Fund measure, November 2012, I believe it was Prop C. Um, it only authorized private sponsors, um, and I think you know part of that was the the RAD program was really starting around then, and and the Housing Authority was kind of going through the process of 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 of, of uh, privatization. Um, before that, there were also some authorizations. There was one in 1994. There was one in 1976. Um, 
1994 one was private and public. The 76 one was just private sponsors. And so those were very small authorizations. They all ran out and that led to this 2012 push, uh, the Housing Trust Fund, which is kind of a grand, grand bargain between a lot of different groups um, that included as just one paragraph within it an Article 34 authorization. So this is often snuck into ballot measures, um, you know, especially when there's a revenue measure and you just need to make sure that you have the ability to actually do the development. You know, it makes sense to just include it in the same measure. Um, what we're talking about is a very simple standalone measure that's just invoking Article 34. It's essentially just a paragraph just saying, you know, consistent with Article 34, we're going to allow the city, not just private sponsors, but also the city to do a lot of a lot of this work. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's I mean, it sounds actually the politics in some ways are good because it's it's unfortunately when you talk about one specific public housing uh, project, then you get you know the nibbies out to say, oh, no, not, you know, not in my neighborhood. And but this is just a very abstract idea of, oh, we have now the capacity. It won't cost you anything right now. That's in part of like future budget. So, mm. I mean, let's let's hope that's and, and what's what's the number one more time? Right, it's uh, ten up to ten thousand, and I can explain how we reach that number. It basically we're hoping that the statewide repeal will happen, and this is actually the hope of the folks in twenty twelve as well, when they did an Article thirty four authorization. We're hoping that we can actually move for a statewide repeal, um, and so that that's why we put in a number that you know is not as high as our ambitions really are for the Community Housing Act overall in the long term. Uh, but I think it should be more than enough to, to get us started until we're able to really make the case to repeal Article 34. Um, I'll say also that we're really hoping that a campaign around Article 34 and this authorization will help people understand the history behind it. Because I think once folks understand the history, the racism, the segregationism, they don't identify with that era. Well, most people don't, but... Um, and, <laughs> they, they, they want to convince themselves they don't. Yeah, and, and so I, I think that'll that'll help. I think that'll help lay the groundwork for eventually a statewide repeal. Um, we're definitely interested and uh, to an extent have been involved in those discussions around statewide repeal. And we're hoping that it can happen as soon as possible. Yeah, so so to, to make, make sure I understand that right, you know, theoretically, San Francisco could make an arbitrarily high number of a preauthorization, which effectively would make Article 34 not apply within San Francisco. But this would be bad politics in a certain way because you want to make sure San Francisco is still mobilized to, to demolish this and help out the entire state. Is that is that the is that what you're kind of saying, or am I reading you wrong? Uh, no, I mean we just we we went with a number that was relatively high, and we think good enough to get us through the time until we can move for a repeal. Uh, there wasn't that much thought, and obviously, you know, we could have thrown in really any number. We we just felt that uh, let's go with something that looks reasonable for now, um, and 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 can kind of help get this started essentially before before we can really expand because definitely we have ambitions to to expand well beyond that number but i i think we're gonna have to make a little bit of the case of the su success of the program before it can really get up to like large numbers like a hundred thousand and absolutely that that is the long-term goal i mean there are four hundred thousand units of, San of of housing in san francisco about thirty thousand are affordable like like um decommodified a huge need to expand the stock of affordable housing in san francisco just looking at those numbers yeah yeah so i mean I, so it sounds like in other words this is just it's a smart political play to put it this level to make sure it gets over the you know goal lines you know easily and it's going to do what you need right now so that that makes sense uh, okay, so but then let's talk about uh, Article 34 repeal. This is kind of the Article 34 workaround. This is the statewide amendment uh, introduced by Ben Allen and Scott Weiner, uh, passed the Senate, is I, I believe yes. still currently held up in the Assembly. And I mean, I, I'm hearing some people getting worried that it might be stalled. A lot. I mean, this year, especially with COVID, a lot of housing stuff has been really just frozen and um i'm just kind of curious if you have any uh input on on what the status is yeah so far uh, it hasn't uh, and you can find this online it hasn't been assigned to committee in the in the state assembly and committee most likely and then passed the floor with a two-thirds vote um but there is a deadline for it to appear on the november 2020 ballot and right now that is june 25th and so the the timing is is sort of starting to run out a lot of different you know kind of uh actions that can be taken and of course we originally said the way this has historically been done is at the federal level and the bernie sanders campaign uh for 2020 included the homes guarantee which of course there's going to be an incredible challenge if he were to have moved forward this at the you know uh congress you know federal congress level uh i mean it's but it was a very ambitious program to kind of restart 
federal public housing, you know, at the level it needs. Uh, there's, you know, only so much we can do, you know, here in the Bay Area because it, you know, a lot of places are just very, very, very hostile to to this kind of stuff. But it's, I think, extremely good that this narrative is at least being moved. And I love the fact it's being moved and people aren't just waiting. They're actually solving it at the local level as, as much as they can. Yeah, I'm very excited by the Homes Guarantee. I'm very aligned with the the work that they're doing. Uh, and I've been in touch with a lot of their folks about, about our measure as well. And uh, completely agree with you. I, I think the important thing, though, about moving forward at the federal level, and many of the groups understand this, is we want to avoid sort of a repeat of the housing authority system, right? In a sense, besides the underfunding, there were a lot of other issues. The housing authority essentially institutionalized the war on drugs as well as part of it. And these, you know, cumbersome federal regulations that were put in place uh, had a disproportionate impact on, 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 on minorities as well. Um, and so we we definitely you know would need federal funding, and there's a sharp need for it, especially in cities that are not cities and counties like San Francisco, where the budget is a lot more able to accommodate, and especially with San Francisco's economy, a lot more able to accommodate some pilot programs that can at least get off the ground. If you look at cities like, say, I, I lived in Union City for a bit in Alameda County. They were struggling, and this was before COVID, they were struggling about how to close a $3 million budget shortfall. And you compare that to the budget of San Francisco, which is over $12 billion. Um, you know, the, the capability for cities that, that actually would want to introduce affordable housing is very minimal without some amount of assistance at either the county level, the state level, or ideally the federal level where all the revenue comes in. Yeah, I mean, Essa, I mean, I'm following Santa Clara, count a lot of smaller cities. Yeah, it's they don't have the benefits of, of I, all the strong business revenue in SF. I mean, San Jose is one of the extreme examples. It's it's a, mm. it's a bedroom town in its own way. And boy, it hurts. You know, it's 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 very tough, too. So I think it's 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 certainly good if SF can kind of learn to deal with its strengths, you know, as opposed to the fact a lot of people are getting rich, you know, there's no excuse to not be able to tap this to, to help people out. So uh, you know, I, th- I think it's uh, it's 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 a good tax. So, I mean, so okay, as far as this goes, we're talking about the fact that gathering signatures uh, is hard in COVID. Uh, you know, as far as you know, you're still doing advocacy within the Bernie Kratz, I imagine, as well as is this like an officially just entirely within the, the Bernie Kratz, or does the uh, you know SFCHA have a life of its own outside of it as well? Yeah, I mean, it started off within the San Francisco Bernie Kratz, like we still have our meetings within the Bernie Kratz Housing Committee, but we've been expanding and, you know, we've been including a lot of other folks. Um, you know, we have our coalition of endorsers listed on the Community Housing Act website. Uh, usually some folks from those organizations come to our meetings and we discuss. Um, the main important time when, you know, we need to have everybody there is obviously when we're talking about legislative amendments, policy changes and so on. Um, and we've been growing this coalition by, you know, listening to folks getting their input, making sure that we make substantive amendments on the basis of community feedback. And it's been been a process uh, to to sort of grow the coalition that way. Um, You know, definitely it's an idea that's not, you know, firmly within the broader political conscience, I would say, like this uh, social housing. I'm hoping that this changes with a lot of what's on the November 2020 ballot, but social housing more broadly is, is still not really understood, I would say, in, in San Francisco. And we're hoping to continue a lot of those efforts with both the um, Article 34 campaign, the social housing fund, uh, and the transfer tax that are going to the ballot, and, and all these other things. Yeah. Have you have you been learning much about, you know, what, what it's been taking to take a, to make a political push in the context of, yeah. of all this weird lockdown and everything? Yeah, I mean, um, even before the lockdown, you know, this this was something that we had to very carefully talk with folks about, because whenever you bring up public housing, many people have very sharp reactions to it. Right. Because of how the housing authority you know, really let down so many low income tenants. And so uh, definitely like clearing up that this would be a lot more different than that, that this would try to center community input, that this would center financial self-sustainability as a very important component. Gaining the trust of a lot of folks uh, as it relates to public housing has been, you know, probably the biggest political um, obstacle. I think, you know, as we've been continuing along on this, it's it's definitely been improving. And if I mean, if I mean, I imagine when I, I imagine some way. If you know when this gets back on the ground, uh, is do you have do you have targets of when this is doable? Because I feel like one big thing is, boy, this is election year. You know, it's really unfortunate not to get that you know nice big uh, turnout. 
Uh, yeah. So, I mean, is do you know about uh, midterm or, you know, four years down or, or what? Or what, what are you thinking? We're, we're thinking um, about the midterms. We're thinking about time between 2020 and 2022 as well. If we're able to pass the authorization for Article 34, you know, a lot of the ideas, we'll see what we're able to maybe work on in coalition with other folks um, and, and introduce to the Board of Supervisors. Um, but we are thinking about potentially bringing this back in 2022, um, depending on how those discussions go. Um, there might also be a need in 2022, again, depending on how a lot of these November measures go, there might be a need to try to set up a different housing department separate from the mayor's office. And uh, the mayor's office of housing, I kind of alluded to this, alluded to this earlier, they, they do a lot of different things in, in one agency. and. I've heard criticisms within, you know, city government that that department probably doesn't need to be within the mayor's office. Like it can probably be split out from the mayor's office in order for better accountability, community input, transparency, and so on. Um, and and this was a historical issue with uh, with with things within the mayor's office. And so some of those discussions we might continue on on uh, between now and 2022 as well. Um, you know, maybe uh, you're right that 2024 presidential years are often better for these kinds of things. Um, and that will definitely play a part in, in the decisions that we have to make. Yeah, I mean, I, it's 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 obviously a pain to to wait. I just it's it's unfortunate. It's, it's certainly not happening uh, this time, as far as that calculus goes, is, is really all that's on my mind. But yeah, and this and this is one of the other stuff that just I mean, I don't really understand SF politics so much. The fact that the mayor and the board is you know separate in its its own sort of way. It's it's very hard to understand who goes where, what the rationale is. But yeah, having the mayor's office control it and said the super, I don't really maybe understand conceptually is it, is it all arbitrary or is there, is there a reason to this it's 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 power struggles really and you know there was an effort to to move the mayor's office of housing into a housing commission in 2016 and actually ed lee came out against it and and it, it failed on the ballot partly for that reason hmm. um and you know so like it, a, a lot of it is just is just power struggles and the the role of the mayor in san francisco has really been a strong mayor system uh, and that's institutionalized in the city charter, um, which the last major reform to it was in, is in, was in 96. Um, but it's been the case for quite a lot of San Francisco's history that it's had a strong mayor system. Um, and, and to get in the weeds of something that was talked about earlier, uh, you said Prop C, uh, you know, it's, it's being challenged in the fact when it is put on by initiative, it does not need the supermajority that it would need if put on by uh, the board, as it were. Is, am I getting that right? And I guess if so, like, is, remind me, is that one of the Prop 13 uh, things about the Super or is that one of the different successors? And what, what, is, what is the legal rationale for why this is being challenged back and forth, whether the supermajority is needed? Yeah, no, this is definitely some kind of insider baseball. But basically, the California Supreme Court in, I think it was around 2017 or so, made this decision that didn't directly say this, but kind of indirectly said this that um, Prop 218, Prop 13, a lot of those that you just mentioned that require this two-thirds supermajority for a special tax that's a tax dedicated to a specific purpose, if you read the language, they actually only say that that only applies when essentially the government puts it on the ballot. No kidding. But there, there's a loophole there that what happens when people, through the initiative process, without government interference or government officials getting involved, put something on the ballot, in that case, you know, the, the Supreme Court didn't directly rule on this, but it left open this legal gray area. And the San Francisco city attorney took the position that because of the Supreme Court ruling, a special tax that's put on the ballot through signatures only needs 50 percent. That happens. Yeah. yeah. So that happened sometime in, in, in uh, I think it was 2017 or so that the city attorney put out a memo about this. Um, and that's why you had a lot of revenue measures. You have November 2018 Propsy. You had June 2018 Baby Propsy, which is the child care initiative. Um, similarly, that one is also stuck in court. You have the parcel tax for schools. Um, that one is also stuck in court because it didn't get two thirds. Um, so, you know, feeling a really strong pinch for revenue because of all these Prop 13s and 218s, which quite frankly are the reason we have to legislate by election cycle and elected officials cannot really even change taxes. It's, it's a little absurd to me. Um, they're a big part of, of why government has really been starved of, of the resources it needs. Yeah, so uh, is there any idea of when the court is going to you know uh, resolve all these questions? Yeah. 
My best estimate is it, it's going to take a, a, a few more years, unfortunately. And and the city. Wow, that's slow. Yeah, yeah and the, the city has been getting some uh, processes in place. There's going to be something on the ballot that might unlock those Prop C funds earlier um, and, and potentially deal with if the city is caught up in litigation and has to give refunds to the companies who've already paid up. Uh, some companies have already been paying the tax, but others just aren't. Yeah, so there, there's a whole complicated uh, grocery streets reform measure that might be on the ballot in, I'm pretty sure it will be on the ballot this November that will hopefully unlock some of those funds as part of it. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, you know, especially, I mean, everywhere, but especially in California, uh, there's so many challenges because all these boring ancient we're talking about you know 40 years for prop 13 uh, all like s- close to 60 70 years for uh for uh, article 34 uh all these things are still controlling us and they're boring it's very hard to get to some off the street oh you need to start caring about this you know weird uh, you know initiative uh you know bylaw that is that's governing us all and it's it, it's but it is reassuring a lot more people who want to change this have been gearing up to you know, teach more and more people about how crazy all this infrastructure is and how it really can and needs to be changed. It's it's uh, it's a slow going because it's uh, you know not many people really you know don't have the time to to learn all this garbage, but it's, it's out there. No, absolutely. And and as it relates to Article Thirty Four, you know, usually I ask folks who are even like have been involved in housing activism for a while. Many people don't even know that this is a thing, you know. Yeah. And so I I think the level of voter education. Is, is something that we can continue to improve and bring more people into the process, uh, hopefully with also this new ballot measure in San Francisco, if we can put it on the ballot, uh, we would be able to get folks to be more conscious about the very real uh, systemic decisions that were made in the 1950s that we still have to live with today. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I think uh, it's you know about about time to wrap up. Uh, any any other final thoughts about you know kind of what you're looking forward to you know s- seeing outside of these things this this November? Other other exciting stuff on the horizon that you're looking at? I, I would just say that you know if folks want to find out more about the Community Housing Act work, we do have a website sfcommunityhousingact.com. Uh, you can join our mailing list. We would be using that if we ever do a future campaign specifically to the issue of. Um, of uh, a tax to fund public housing. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, if you're interested in getting involved in the legislation, volunteering, helping get this word out, um, please uh, you know, volunteer on our website, um, connect with us, uh, find out more. Cool, well thanks so much for being here. It's been, it's been fun to talk about this. Yeah, thanks Mike. Okay. We have been talking to Laksh Basin of the SF Barney Kratz and of the SF Community Housing Act. You can find this episode and all previous episodes of the Henry George Program at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Casey Shoe, Stanford.